Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Attention all you high achievers, today we're talking about perfectionism. I think we all have a little of that in us. With the author, Vitaly Buford, of Addicted to Perfect, A Journey Out of the Grips of Adderall. Vitaly, welcome. Is this what perfectionism looks like? This is what imperfection looks like. No makeup, hair, and this creepy mic in the video. Yes, I like that. Do you ever get sick of talking about perfectionism? No, I don't because I still struggle with it, which is why I teach it, right? We teach what we need most. So I'm constantly uh, uncovering new layers of perfectionism and I love helping people get free of it. Yeah. Can you talk to me about what perfectionism looks like? Yeah. So perfectionism is externally motivated, right? So it's when we're outsourcing our self-worth, our decisions, our intuition, to other people. So anything outside of ourselves, right? It's when we're asking people, what decisions should I make? You know me better than me, you know, you know, than I know me. It's when we allow other people to be the expert of us, right? And so symptoms of it, like it shows up in so many different ways that we typically wouldn't associate with perfectionism, but it looks like people pleasing, advice seeking, procrastination. We avoid difficult conversations, right? Because we can't control other people. The need for control is a symptom of perfectionism, imposter syndrome, indecision, right? Not trusting your decisions going back and forth, or you make a decision and then you beat yourself up for weeks and then constant overwhelm, stress, anxiety. Those are some of the symptoms. There's many others, but those are some of the main symptoms. What percentage of the population struggles with this? You asked the best questions, Rena. <laughs> 97% of people struggle with some form of perfectionism. So let's just say everybody, I don't, I've never met that 3%. I don't know about them, but 97% of people, and you know, it depends on where you fall on the spectrum, right? I fell on the very severe, you know, perfectionism spectrum, but some people may just have, may just struggle with people pleasing and that's it. So since you were in the severe category, what does that look like? Yeah. So it's not as severe as it used to be, but when I was in the depths of it and I had no idea like what it was doing, I had an Adderall addiction. <laughs> so that was a, a massive symptom. And again, you do not have to have an Adderall addiction to be a perfectionist, but that was the level of control that I felt I needed to feel worthy, right? That's the level of control. So it looked like an Adderall addiction, workaholism. I never had difficult conversations. I never showed up authentically in relationships. I did procrastinate at work, right? I, I was, I definitely took action and got a lot done, but then, you know, also at the same time, I procrastinated on things, you know, that proposal, I'd wait until the last minute, you know, love the high of last minute meeting, you know, just barely meeting a deadline, constantly phoning eight friends for advice. I mean, that was a major symptom for me. I mean, I would be calling because I wanted other people to, to agree with me, right? I need you to validate the decision I shouldn't make. <laughs> Right. I know in my heart that I need to say no, but saying yes is so much easier. So I'm going to call eight friends and have them be in the same boat with me. 
you know, I mean, it was insane, right? It's like, what do I, what do I want for dinner? What? Just ask yourself, Vitaly. I mean, it was, it was crazy. You know, I couldn't make a decision for myself because I had always been asking other people what decision I should make. So I never even knew what decision to make. I was constantly comparing myself to, to other people. Didn't, didn't trust myself. I had no idea what my intuition was because again, other people had been my intuition. It was insanity. Now I looked by all means, like I had it together on the outside, a successful corporate career, very thin, high achieving, all those things that you attribute to success, but I was not happy. I was dying on the inside. Did anybody call your bluff? Well, yeah. Right. So finally, when this one coach, which led me to getting sober, you know, he saw me, <laughs> he saw me interacting with my team. And I mean, this was, he was a coach and he's a really good friend of mine now. And I'm super grateful for him. But at the moment I was not, but he saw me interacting with my team that I led because I had a huge marketing team when I was leading the, the departments at law firms. And so he looked at me and he goes, um, I think you're really critical of your team. And as a perfectionist, I do not want feedback. And I especially don't want critical feedback, right? Because that shows that I'm imperfect. Like I want to know everything. Like I don't, I do not need you to highlight my imperfections. I do it for myself. And so that was really hard for me to hear. And he could tell that I was upset. And he said, no, I think you're critical of your team because you're critical of yourself. And I was like, oh, and then he said, I see in you what I refuse to see in me. And that was the phrase that changed my life. I see in you what I refuse to see in me. It's so true, right? We see, we point and judge others for things that we're struggling with that we don't want to deal with always, right? I, there's a famous you know, line that I always go with. You spot it, you got it, right? Anything you spot in someone else, the good and the bad, <laughs> you've got it. <laughs> and, and it hurts sometimes, right? I'm like, damn it. <laughs> I just judged that person. And that means I got some work to do. <laughs> For me, I was in the depths of an Adderall addiction. It had been 10 years, really, really struggling with an Adderall addiction and this need for control, again, my perfectionism. And so he said that at the tail end of my addiction and that quote just really resonated with me. And so what happened was, is my mother showed up and she had been drinking a lot and I looked at her and I was like, why can't you get sober? I was like, you're always drunk. You're always ruining everything. I was pointing my finger at her, blaming at her, you know, enough is enough. And then I remembered that phrase that my friend told me, I see in you what I refuse to see in me. And I was like, oh my God, I'm pointing the finger at my mom to get sober, but I'm over here refusing to get sober. And that moment changed my life seven years ago. Wow. Yeah. That totally gives me the chills because I'm constantly doing that. We all do. We're human, but it's, we want to minimize it, right? Like we all do it. doesn't matter how healed or woke we are, whatever people say, but you just, you know, want to do it less than we normally do. Probably. When do you do it now? <laughs> I definitely do. I would probably say where it hits the most. I still, still really struggle hard with my body image. I'm going to keep it real. And so I think for me when, you know, so that, that insecurity, so when someone loses weight or, you know, and I'm comparing myself, like that's where it hits me the most because my body image has been such a huge part of my self-worth and such something that I've struggled with for a long time. And so I would say that's it. And then definitely my fiance, I love to judge him. When did the <laughs> body image stuff start? How real are we keeping it on this podcast? Oh, a hundred percent. I'm really interested in that. Yeah. I've struggled with that for sure. So still do. Yeah. So I'm like still uncovering the layers of it, but it started when I was, I was molested when I was three years old. 
And I would say it started then. You How know, did because, you know that? Well, I uncovered it later, right? So I didn't remember it. I uncovered it just, you know, just honestly, three or four years ago. Oh shit! I knew, like, I, I just knew that something had happened to me because my body, uh, my body hate ran so deep. And I was so self-critical. I'm like, this is not just your normal, <laughs> like, I don't like how I look today. Like this is, there is something deeper. And, and I'd really kind of asked God and asked the universe, whatever, like, please guide me to whatever is holding me back in this area. And so I, I discovered that that happened. And, you know, I think at age three, I mean, you know, any kind of sexual abuse is, is scary and there's trauma with that, but, and there's other pieces of that too in my life that happened later on, but at three, you know, I think I right then and there decided, you know, I'm bad. I'm unworthy. My body is bad and I deserve to be punished. Oh my God, that sucks. And it's awful. I'm so sorry. It's been a good puzzle piece for me. Honestly, when I realized that that happened, I was like, okay, like now I can learn to heal from this. Like I'm, there's no big question mark anymore. And it's not like the healing happened overnight. I'm still connecting the dots. Like, oh, that's why. Interesting. Did you ever have any other addictions alongside the Adderall? Like I would say the last four years of my Adderall addiction, I drank every night and I was, I was able to easily give that up, but I would say that if I continued drinking, like my likelihood, I mean, it runs in my family. Like the likelihood of me becoming an alcoholic was pretty high. Whoa. So I gave up everything. That's amazing. I know that you discovered Adderall in college. I did. Like your junior year. I feel like eating disorders in college are so rampant, but I never stumbled upon speed. How did you find that? I knew that like addiction ran in my family. So I drank in high school and I didn't actually drink a lot in college because I drank a lot in high school. So it wasn't this novel thing for me in college. And I stayed away from all hard drugs because I knew the likelihood of me becoming addicted. And so I just stayed away from that stuff. And so it was actually a boyfriend that I was dating. He was prescribed to it. He was legitimately ADHD. And I was taking like 18 hours in a chemistry class and I was working two part-time jobs and it was intense. And he was like, why don't you just try this? And I was like, okay. I'm like, it's a pill, it's prescription. And it, I mean, I was hooked instantly. Whoa. What did it feel like? I mean, it's an upper, right? So I was, and I'm an intense person sober. I am intense in all caps sober. And so like I have one of the most intense, like literally my energy is so intense that I impact like a football stadium. Like if it's bad, everybody in the, in the football stadiums fucked literally, you know, honestly, I just, it, it kept me focused. And like, there was just this high of getting things done and I could, you know, I wasn't hungry and I struggled, you know, I gained a lot of weight in college. And so for me, like I lost weight really easily. And so that self that negative self-talk, it diminished. I mean, it was that the self-talk about my body was so loud and so invasive that just quieting down that piece for me was life-changing. I was also able to, you know, work study for 16 hours. I mean, it was insanity. And so it was quote, the perfect drug. Wow. It is until you start needing more, right? Because if you take it every day and you abuse it, your tolerance just grows. So my tolerance over Mm. 10 years went from taking 20 milligrams every day to 360. Right. I heard you say that on another podcast. That's crazy. So like, how do you even get the prescription for that? Yeah. So I was like illegally obtaining prescriptions. I was doctor shopping. I would see four doctors a month, which is illegal. I would fill one prescription and insurance. The rest I would pay cash. I mean, it was a really expensive habit. It was dangerous 
doctors were finding out about each other. They were cutting me off. They weren't reporting me to the police because I think they probably would have gotten in trouble as well. So that was the only thing that kept me, I think, from going to jail. Now, if I'd continued, um, that definitely would have been likely. I just, that's what I thought I needed to be successful. I didn't know any other way because I started taking it when I was like 20. Because I was so young and that's how I identified success and worthiness. I was like, how am I, how am I going to even function without this? After you made the choice to go to rehab and function without it, how did your mom respond to that? My mom actually got sober for a, for a good period of time. She was inspired indirectly by me and my courage to do that. And so that was really cool. We'd go to meetings together and, and it was fun to talk recovery with, with her. And she's, you know, definitely relapsed and is back on and back off, but she's always proud of me. Well, I would say that, you know, I know a lot of the work that you're doing now is helping people and making change in other people's lives. So that time with your mom is really special that you got to experience that with her. Most definitely. I know too, like there's another piece that's your sister and I don't know how comfortable you are sharing that, but she too struggles with addiction. Yeah. So she's sober now, but she struggled. I think she's probably been sober for five years. However, she defines sobriety. I don't really know. I define sobriety by being sober from every substance, but it's different for everyone and different things work for different people. So to each their own, but she's been sober for, I would say like maybe four years, which is pretty impressive. And We don't have a real strong relationship, but I'm just glad she's healthier. Wow. That's amazing. I didn't realize that. Yeah. But she also made you a mommy. She did. So yes, for all of our listeners, uh, two years into my sobriety, I became the guardian of my nephew and he is now my son. And actually it'll be five years this July. Yeah. Wow. I feel like that's a big blessing. Oh my gosh, major blessing. I mean, he... I was in the depth. So when I got sober, I developed a really intense eating disorder, right? It's like one drug to the next. I I gave up Adderall and I still hadn't really healed my need for control. I mean, I still haven't, let's be real, but it's just not as loud as it it used to be. And so I developed a really intense eating disorder and got down to 103 pounds. And I became his mom in the midst of this. And he really helped me heal my eating disorder. I mean, obviously he didn't know about it, but just his presence. And I couldn't live that life where I was working out extreme, like twice a day, every day. I couldn't do that as a single parent. And I also didn't want to model that behavior for him. Like I knew how addiction had been modeled for me and I wanted to write a different story. What story are you writing? You know, a story of authenticity, a story of bravery, a story of, you know, communicating with our children, right? Like for me as a mom, and I think This is just like the theme, right? When you heal yourself, you heal everyone around you. You know, you heal yourself, you heal your child. You heal yourself, you heal your partner, your friend. You know, you you don't do that as as a form of, of control, but indirectly when you heal, it changes everyone else. And so the more you take care of yourself, I mean, like that's a form of like, I take care of me for him. How can someone start overcoming? (laughs) Which part, perfectionism or? (laughs) Oh my gosh. So I think the beginning is curiosity. Start getting curious. Like we don't have to know it all. We're not perfect. We're not supposed to be. Adopt the student mindset of life, right? Because if we're not evolving, we're not like, what are we doing? If there's not another layer to uncover, what are we doing? We're not, we're not living. And there's never going to be an end point to growth and evolution in our lives. And so when you can be curious, because as perfectionists, we don't, we're not curious because we want to know everything. 
And we sure as hell don't want anyone else to, to know that we don't know everything because that would show how imperfect we are, even though imperfection is way better than perfection. And so curiosity really is the start. Just being curious, you know, why am I being so negative? Wow, that, th that thought that I just had in my head was really hard. Wow, that judgment I just had about someone else, you know, what's really going on with me? Why am I so insecure? You know, do I have a drinking problem? Is this really impacting me? You know, do I need to do something different with my parenting? You know, could I be kinder to my partner? You know, so I think it's just about being curious. And when it, when you get curious, it really kind of depersonalizes it because when we are perfectionists, we get out of our hearts and into our heads. We're completely in our heads. And the sweet spot for humans is honestly to be in our heads and our hearts. We want the combination of both. We don't want to be hundred percent in our hearts, which I'm a very highly sensitive human being. So I oftentimes can be, and then also I can also be in my head like a lot, but we want that combination and perfectionism keeps us in our heads. We are our thoughts, our feelings are facts, you know, everything, you know, we think something bad, we are bad. And so when you can begin, become curious, you watch the movie instead of being the movie. Does your partner put you in check? Yes. And we are both really committed to our own growth. Like he goes to therapy. I go to therapy. Like we do our own thing and we grow. So yes. And we definitely call each other out. He's much more direct than I am. <laughs> As are most men. I know. I'm like, you could have uh, said that nicer, but I'll roll with it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So what has like buying a house together been like? It has been intense. In fact, one of the direct things, which is, as you can see, my office is like, there's this piece of artwork that's like not even hanging up, but we're rolling with it imperfectly. Yeah. Like two weeks ago when we're in the midst of like moving, closing the home loan, selling my house and all of this stuff. And like, I'm 38, he's 40. We, neither one of us have lived together and, and I have a child. So we're also blending a family. He like looked at me and he was like, you're the rock of this family. You need to get your shit together. And I was like, okay. Thank you. And thanks for that reminder. I don't really like it as a perfectionist. I don't like it, but thank you because I was not being the rock of the family. I am really curious about how you went from 103 pounds to like being able to be okay with eating differently. That's still trial and error for me. You know, like there are days where my eating is I'm not happy with myself, right? Like I have ice cream, tacos, hamburgers, and maybe more ice cream. And then there's days where I'm healthier. And I think for me, it's just about like, A, I'm not allowed to do diets. I cannot do a diet. It puts me into eating disorder mode. It triggers me. And it's just, there are too many rules. And so I just, you know, like I just play around with different things. I mean, I'm still figuring it out. It's just the awareness, right? Like, okay, my likelihood of going down a dark hole with this is likely, but also the eating disorder was so traumatic. I don't have the ability to diet. I don't, I can't because it was so intense. I mean, I was, I had no fun. I would go to restaurants and, you know, I would be that woman who ordered the fish with no sauce and extra vegetables. Don't put any butter on the vegetables. I mean, I was, I mean, I sucked. I sucked the fun out of my own life. I sucked the fun out of everyone else's life. Like I was always thinking like, oh my gosh, where am I going to eat? I can only eat this food. I mean, it consumed me. I mean, something that I struggle with is I literally like look every day in the mirror at myself. Like, am I going to change what I look like from day to day? Right. Do you do that at all? I do, but I also know like, okay. So as perfectionists, what happens is, is we think our current body is our forever body. 
You know, like the way I look right now, I'm going to look forever. And so for me, I'm like, this is my body right now. And I don't have to like my body and I don't have to dislike my body. I can be just neutral. You know, I think that's one of the biggest things. I'm like, I don't have to love you. And I also don't have to, you know, like I can just be neutral right now. And then I just remind myself, like, this is just where I am right now. Like I've gained some weight recently. Well, guess what? I'm going through the biggest transition of my life. I'm sober. And the only self-soothing mechanism I have other than journaling, like, let's be real, I like to journal, but come on. <laughs> like, the only like self-soothing I have right now is food. And I've just given myself that permission. I really love what you said. Like, this is me right now and I'm in a transition and it doesn't have to be forever. That actually is a great line. Is there anything else that you tell yourself that snaps you out of it? Yeah, I think for me, it's, it's a choice. You know, I have friends that I call, honestly, like if I am really in the depths of like body darkness and I am being really hard on myself, I reach out because, you know, I think about it and it's like, do I want to spend the rest? I mean, like, I spent literally three decades hating my body and I still go back and forth with my relationship with my body. And so I'm like, I, this is stealing my joy. Like, why do I want this to continue to run my life? And so I have to have these conversations, but it is a choice and some days are better than other. But like, for me, truly saying like, this is just my body right now, like has been a huge lifesaver for me because as a perfectionist, like, I think like, okay, this body that I'm in right now, this is how I'm going to be forever. I also remind myself that I have body dysmorphia. So how I think I look is not actually how I look. And then I also remind myself that when I was thin, I hated my body then too. So there is never, <laughs> it's not about the weight ever. That's really interesting. Do you think that that's played into your relationships? Almost definitely, right? Like if I'm in a space where I don't like my body, I isolate for sure. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be intimate. I don't want to. And so for me too, like, I have to think of it, like it, it doesn't just, it doesn't just impact me. It impacts how I parent. It impacts my closeness with my partner. So the body hate, like it's a, like, it's really important for me to choose to have better, more productive thoughts because it really helps everyone else. And then also just to be a little more thoughtful about my food, because I can go down that hole of, you know, binging or whatever. And that's just not healthy behavior. When you're in the midst of 75 hard and I started it a few times and I just didn't follow through. But when I, when I did it, you're in the midst and you're like, I'm a badass and I'm going to finish it. The gallon of water, you feel better. Your skin looks better. You have more energy. The two workouts. I mean, I just walked, I didn't do extreme hardcore workouts. So for me, it was just the consistency and showing up for myself. I would love to know, like with some of the people that you've worked with, yeah, what have you helped them be consistent with? You know, I think it's a routine, you know, like, so even just daily gratitude journaling and waking up and whatever routine looks good for you, but like having a foundation, because here's the thing you need like a baseline foundation in life, which everything like is born from and springs from, right? Like, and so you, and, it, and you need that baseline foundation for confidence so that you can manage the obstacles of the day, the feedback we get, the whatever it is, like that we can be resilient with it. And so if we don't have a routine, we don't manage those things as well. Like when we have a routine, a morning routine, like we've already started the day off with a win. You know, you've already followed through on a promise that you made to yourself. I'm glad you brought up confidence. And also like for me, like when I work with entrepreneurs, I mean like corporate 
companies is what I primarily do, but I'll work with entrepreneurs on building, on expanding their business because I help them believe that their dreams are worthwhile. I mean, that's one of my biggest things is that the dreams that each of us have been given are, are A, our unique dreams, but B, we've been given them and we have the power to make them happen. Like our dreams are not happenstance. You know, like one of my dreams is for Reese Witherspoon to produce the movie of my book. I sure as hell don't know how it's going to happen. And it may not happen until I'm 50, but I'm telling you, like it is a dream I've been given and some way, shape or form, it's going to happen. But you know, like the business that I want to build, writing a book was something and I wrote it, you know, like becoming a mom. I, <laughs> the dreams that we've been given have been given to us for a reason. It means that we have the power to make it happen. You had that idea, roll with it. What was the process of the book? Like putting it together? Oh. What did that look like? I knew that when I wanted to write a book, like I, I wanted to work with a publisher and I wanted to work with a publisher because I knew that I needed a legal deadline to be held accountable to, because with my memoir, I'd be talking about it for 10 years and it would never happen. And so I was like, I need a publisher solely because I need someone like riding my ass to get this done. And I of course procrastinated my perfectionism on my book about perfectionism. I waited and waited until my publisher called me and was like, if you do not get, get the initial draft to us in five weeks, it will be another year until your book is published. And I was like message received. And I wrote the first draft in five weeks. And that's all I did besides eating cake, because I was like re-traumatizing myself by writing it and just reliving stuff. But yeah, so I wrote the first draft and then it went over to the content editor and the editing process was much more intense and much more thorough, but it was a really, really cool process. And just to, to be able to put that out in the world and say that you, you know, just achieved a goal, right? I, I had no dreams about it being on the, you know, Oprah's book list or the, a New York times bestseller. For me, it was like, I said, I was going to write a book and publish it. And I did. That's amazing. Are there parts that you left out? Oh, most definitely. There were definitely pieces I left out. And for me, like the stories about my sister and my mom, there were some things that I took out, some stories about them, just because, you know, they weren't necessary. Like when I was writing a story, I was like, is this going to, you know, is this just really necessary to tell my story? Or am I just putting it in there because I'm pissed and it's being, I'm being harmful toward them? Right. And, so and would I, it hurt them? Right. And I mean, it did hurt them, you know, like it, I, that was going to happen. Right. But I talked to them, talked to them about it. I gave them the option to read an advanced copy, all of those things. And so I knew it was going to hurt regardless, but it was important for me to tell my story. And so I had to really work through that in therapy. However, like I just had to be thoughtful. Like, why is this story, you know, why is this story really in the book? Why am I telling this? And then, yeah, there are a few things that I kind of kept for myself. That's a really hard part about telling your story authentically because it does involve other people and it involves your version. Right. Everybody in my book and in my life and in my, we're doing the best they knew how to do. You know, it doesn't mean that it was okay. It doesn't mean it didn't hurt, but they were doing the best they knew how to do. Do you feel comfortable talking about how you found out about the, the abuse? Yes, I feel comfortable. I just really, like I had really intense, like body hate, body image, like, you know, just not wanting to be touched a whole lot. And like, I just knew I couldn't explain it, but I was just like, something happened to me. And I was like, but how, if you can't remember it, how do you even explore that? Right. And then it's like, if you don't remember it, did it even happen? I mean, it's a mind fuck. And so I just kind of posed the question to God in the universe. I was like, if this is something that did happen to me, I would like to know. I was doing like this med this guided meditation, some words and images kind of came up and not images, but some words. And 
I was like, you know, I think something happened. And so I called my aunt and I was like, you know, I think something happened. Did you know? And she was like, um, yes, actually. And I was like, what? Whoa, uh, she must have been surprised by that question. Right, right. Yeah. And then Whoa. there were like two occurrences, three years old. And then when I was eight years old and two different people. But, and so I was actually thinking about the, the thing that happened when I was eight. She only knew about the thing that happened when I was three. Oh my God. So how did you discover the other part? The other one I like knew, and I talked to my sister about. As a mother, that is completely terrifying. It is because I even brought it up to my mother and she was like, yeah, she was like, you know what? I should have gotten you therapy. She didn't know about that. She still doesn't know about the, what happened to me when I was eight. It's not relevant even talking to her about it, but, and that's okay. I wanted to ask her about when I was three because I just did because I really don't remember that. And she anyway validated it and said yes and didn't like I was afraid she would, you know, get upset or you know wouldn't tell me the truth or whatever. And she was like, you know what, you you know now that I thought think about it, I should have put you in therapy. But it was you know you were three and we just didn't we didn't know any better. A lot of people have been sexually abused more than so many. you know. It's crazy because so many women that I've talked to have opened up to me about that. And I too just block it out. Well, right. And we, well, we minimize, right? Totally minimize. And not even just with that specifically, but with anything that we experience in life, we minimize it as humans because A, we think maybe someone else had it worse. I mean, I feel that way. I'm like, well, it was three and it was, but there are a lot of people who had it worse. So why should I even talk about it? Right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't that bad, Vitaly. But it's my story and it's bad for me, 100%. you know, and, and yeah. also like, and so it's about not minimize, we don't minimize, we minimize our stories because A, we think someone else had it worse or it's so painful. We don't even want to think about it. And so we just push it down. Right. So, I wonder what that does to us. You know, we, we start coping through perfectionism, addiction, people, whatever it is, we, we reach for these coping mechanisms to make us feel better. And that was really the goal of my book because it's so ridiculously raw <laughs> and real. You know, I wrote my book to encourage people to own their stories. Like I've had so many people read it and they were like, I had no idea that your book was going to be like, like that, Vitaly. And I'm like, yeah, uh-huh. And when anybody says they read my book, Rena, I'm like, oh, you know me really well. <laughs> I love that. It's kind of like, like when oh. people listen to listen yeah. to episodes of this right. show, right? right? You're like, oh, you know me really well. Yeah, exactly. It's owning your story and what happened to you. It doesn't matter what happened to other people. This happened to you and it shaped who you are and claim it and heal from it. I love that. I think too, because I've experienced it, it opens the door for other people to be vulnerable because I share my life pretty openly clearly people are listening and like whoa <laughs> so I share stuff pretty pretty openly about myself what can we do to let go of some of that control for me it's about connecting to something bigger than myself so you don't have to believe in God but like it could be the universe it could be nature it can be whatever it is but for me like having a spiritual part of my life has really helped me let go of control so a lot of people don't like but I am a very spiritual person I believe in God the universe and that's been an important part of me relinquishing, like letting go of control. And I think it's just trusting the timing of your life and trusting that it's all going to work out for you, that life isn't happening to you. It's happening for you, right? Like I look back on my 10 year addiction and I wouldn't be here talking to you. If that had happened, I wouldn't have written a book. I wouldn't be teaching perfectionism if that wouldn't have happened. And then, you know, my favorite quote that I like live my life by is you can't miss what's meant for you. And that helps me let go of control. 
Have you always had that spiritual connection? You know, in and out, but I would say since getting sober, it's been the strongest. And I would say definitely in the, since in the past two years, really strong. Wow. And like, do you have conversations with God? Yes. And it's become like more important for me. So it's like the first thing I do in the mornings, most definitely, but that's not how it always was. You know, I mean, I wanted to be in control. I did not want to put things in, in God's hands, you know, and it's something too, that ebbs and flows, you know, like I'll have months of like, I am connected and then I'll have a month where I'm not connected. So, you know, I'm human. It ebbs and it flows. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? Oh. What's one thing he would change about his parenting? That has not been asked. I love that. Mm-hmm. What's one thing with his parenting he would have done different? I would love to know, do you have any struggles with parenting? Most definitely. I'm a control freak. You know, I would say for me early on, even just like letting myself love my child because I felt guilty for being his mom because he was my sister's biological child. And so I felt really guilty, even though I was doing a really, what everyone would say, good thing. Right. Um, I felt really guilty about it. And I carried that guilt around, even though, I mean, you know, everyone was like, that doesn't make any sense. I, I did because I, I didn't like outshining my sister. You know, that was something that I've struggled with in a lot of my, like throughout my childhood, it was like being the better child, you know, having survivor's guilt because I did better in life, whatever it is. And she's a great person and has a very kind heart and has done well. And we're, we're just different. You know, I was afraid that he would be taken, you know, he would go back or, you know, and, and not that that was a plan, but you just, I never knew. So I, and to protect myself, like I didn't, I didn't open my heart hundred percent. Now that's not the issue anymore, but I mean, it took me like three years. It was really hard, you know, and right now, you know, we're blending a family with my fiance and I'm telling you, no, nobody, I need to, does anyone talk about the difficulties of blending a family? I think it's like takes eight years. Seriously. I feel like I read that somewhere. Talk about what that's like, actually. (laughs) What does that involve? It is by far like the hardest thing. One of the hardest things that I struggle with because I want to control everyone's experience. I want to protect my son. I want to you know, protect my partner. I want everyone to be happy. And so I can fall into my old role of like peacemaker, all of that. And I want to control everyone's experience. And also oftentimes, even though he's my fiance and we're getting married, I feel like we're too much for him. And so I'm afraid that he'll leave that my, my son and I are too much. I just feel too much. And so because I feel too much, I try to control everything, right? Like I will take on more of the parenting. I will do this because I don't want to be too much. So if we don't step on your toes a whole lot, if we don't impact your life a lot, that's a story in my head. And so I've had to really allow someone in. How do you communicate that? I mean, that's a big challenge to be so open and vulnerable. Right. Well, I'm a communicator probably too much. My fiance would be like, He's like, I love you for your big heart and you're really sweet, but like you feel too much. (laughs) And I do, you know, like I definitely feel more than I, sometimes more than I would like. I'm making up for my, you know, decade long addiction where I felt nothing, I guess. But I talk about it. We talk about it. We deal with things, you know, and we're, you know, making up the rules as we go. I mean, we, we don't know what we're doing. You know, we're lit. We're about, we're living together for the first time. Well, Vitaly, this has been so amazing and beautiful. And I'm so glad that we connected at the right time when we should. I know. know. Rena, you're awesome. You ask really good questions. You're good at this. Not that you didn't know that, but you are good at this. Thank you. I've got that curiosity that we were talking about. Yeah, you do. You do. You're really good. You're a good listener.
and I am definitely getting your book and let <laughs> others know how they can find it too. Yeah. You can buy it on Amazon. You can also get it on Audible. Addicted cool. to Perfect. Love it. And where else can people find you? Yeah. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Instagram. It's Vitaly Buford and you can email me. It's just Vitaly at Gmail. Love it. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. The funny part is, is that this subject matter is about being a perfectionist. It's overcoming abuse and addictive medication. You know, depression is a very uh, difficult subject. And we have certain drugs, again, to give us a push to get us in motion or moving. And yet that can only really be a temporary cure. Otherwise, we get addicted to the uppers or to the pain medicine, or we can't get enough of it. We always need more to get spiked and get the same high or feeling. And this is the problem with drinking or doing anything in an excessive manner. And isn't being a perfectionist also can be deemed, if it's not under control, we all want to strive to do better. But if we're not careful, we're questioning and procrastinating every move that we make, trying to make the perfect stock deal, the perfect business deal, the perfect relationship, the perfect day, and planning everything to the T. And yet we find it almost really impossible to control all of the variables in our lives. And the only one who really has the answer and can guide us and can make the best choices is someone like God who doesn't have imperfections. We do have imperfections that we need to continue to improve upon. And by doing so, we try to do the best that we can, but we have to remember that to ascertain absolute perfection is almost impossible for a human being to do. And really, the only person who's giving this high critique of oneself is that person themselves. Nobody really gives a shit how perfect we are, except the individual in question, which is ourselves. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Listener.